The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Nice to be here with everybody, all the folks on Zoom, all the people here in the room, and even the folks who listen later on our YouTube live stream channel. And most of you know this, but a lot of the programs that happen at the center go up on the YouTube channel, so you can always watch later if you'd like. And uh, I wanted to begin a series of talks on what's called the three characteristics. And these, this chant we did at the beginning, if you didn't catch it, the five remembrances or the five subjects for frequent recollection. And it, it relates to a story in the text when the Buddha was, uh, not, it's the more current scholars don't necessarily see him as a prince, but you know, the son of a wealthy family and evidently that part of India, northern India, um, sort of run by the governing clan. And he was part of that family and his father was head, that little fight them. So he got treated really well. And, you know, they make, who knows how these stories get created over the centuries. But, you know, it's said that he had everything he wanted, you know, all the central pleasures, blue lotuses when they were in season, and red lotuses, and, you know, and a place to be in the hot season and a place to be in the cool season, and things like that. So he had a nice existence and in this particular passage the Buddha who's recollecting this later in his life to the nuns and monks and lay people who are practicing students of his he said he repeated three times I was really delicate <laughs> you know things were pretty easy for me I was privileged and uh, and then at some point as the story goes at least he got interested and so this teaching on the five remembrances is a reverberation of what happened growing up with a really comfortable, privileged existence. And he talks about having the vanity of, you know, youthfulness. Some of you remember that, you know, like when we're young. Some of you are probably young in the room. And there's a sense that, yeah, of course I'm young. And that's it. It's like a full stop. Like, yeah, that's, that's part of the flow, but that flow's going, it's flowing somewhere. <laughs> right? Old age, sickness, and death. I was, we were talking, I forget to whom, uh, recently, you know, that at birth, you know, we should have that real joy of that creature coming forward and all the possibilities of that life and, and, but also just the sense, yeah, the whole package, like, what does it mean to be born? Well, it means you're going to age, it means you're going to have to, in Buddhism we call it the eight worldly winds of gain and loss, pain and pleasure, some fame, you know, even if it's just your grandmother thinking you're great. <laughs> and, you know, not, what's the opposite of fame? You know, people thinking you're not so great. Praise and blame. So these inevitable worldly winds that we get pushed around by. Clearly, it's not the same for all of us. Some of us have 
an easier go of it. Some people are having a more difficult go with life, more oppression, more difficulty. But everyone's getting pushed around by these winds of gain and loss, pleasure and pain. Right? And uh, so there's this, you know, poignant story where the, I mean, it's made to be a, a bit ridiculous because it seems hard to believe, but he, he asked his charioteer to take him out of the palace or the big house to see what's going on out there. And lo and behold, he sees an older person and he goes, what's this? Because the, you know, his parents, was his, it was his aunt who raised him because his mother died at childbirth. And his father and his aunt uh, didn't want him to be exposed to the truths of life, you know, that people get old, for example. So they kind of kept all the people around him young and beautiful. And so he, when he got out there with this charioteer, you know, he sounded old, it's like, what's that? And the charioteer had explained to him, well, that's what happens. And, and so the, the line here, I'll, I'll just read it for you in the sutta and the text. But I too am subject to aging, not safe from aging. And so it cannot befit me to be shocked, humiliated, and disgusted on seeing another who is aged. When I considered this, the vanity of youth entirely left me. So he took it in. Oh, this isn't like a special case to this person. This happens to everyone. And same sort of repeats with seeing somebody who's sick. Well, I considered this, the vanity of health entirely left me. So however healthy we feel right now, right? It's, it's nice to hold that because we don't know what's around the next turn. But we know it won't always be this way. I mean, that we know with certainty. It won't be this way. And, and it's, for those of you who are on the younger end of the spectrum, you know, yeah, the statistically, the statistics might be in your favor. But there's always some percentage of 30-year-olds or 20-year-olds or 40-year-olds that have these kind of shocks of ill health. And then he does the same when, you know, so as the story went, he goes out on three separate occasions. He sees a, an older person, a sick person, then he sees a dead person, you know, a group of family members taking somebody off to the charnel ground. Back then they burnt the bodies. And, uh, and then the same thing, the vanity of life got extinguished. Because I saw, oh, this isn't a special case, that some people die. And what is it, how does that change us when we know, oh yeah, this is, this, whatever we have, is in motion. There's nothing we hold on to. And some in the room are nodding because you know this very well from your own direct experience, whether it's the loss of a parent or some of you have lost children in the room. And you know this, the, the shock, because it's not, we're not trained in our culture generally. I mean, it, it can, it differs family by family probably, but generally speaking in our families, in our culture, we're not taught that life is a fragile thing that it comes and goes. And generally we hide, tuck it away, pretty it up, 
Um, it's like, imagine if we, I mean, I know this may sound a little weird, but imagine if you had a family, you grew up in a family where whenever there was roadkill, you know, who, your parent or whoever was taking care of you would pull over and say, hey, honey, let's go check this out. You know, and you just sit there and you just said, oh yeah, look at that squirrel. It had a life and now that life is gone. Or whenever a bird hits your window at home, you know, and falls to the ground, you'd kind of go out, put a little lawn chair next to it, and you, you just sort of observe, not just the bird, but how your heart is doing letting that in. And you, you would, um, as a family, you would, you would sort of sense the sacredness of being able to be around somebody who's in those last months or weeks or days or hours. And like, because it's not just that we want to support those people, our loved ones or friends, um, but we also, I think, in a deeper way, we sensed like there is something to learn here. There's something to integrate here that I haven't fully integrated. So we take advantage of it. But you know, our instinct, our conditioned habit is different. Like just watch your mind when you're on a bus or moving through life and you come across an older person or a really sick person, someone who looks really weak or pale or injured in some way or you know, has some mobility issue that they're dealing with or you know, their senses aren't all working ability to see or hear, whatever, and just notice, like really feel your body energetically respond when you're around aging, sickness, and death, wherever you can find it, and, and to develop radar for it. Now those are really potent bits of medicine, but there's just more ordinary medicine, like every night as you're sitting there about to go to bed or in bed, just really get that this day has ceased. And this week has ceased, or my 40s have ceased, my 50s have ceased, I'm well into my 60s. January is moving towards cessation. February is about to be born. Spring can't count on spring because then there's summer and we can't even count on summer because then there's fall and then it's winter again if we're lucky enough to be around and to you know all the irritants that might be there in our life maybe you have some illness now or financial insecurity or whatever might be going on for any of us you know we want to what helps us actually be real with difficult circumstance and more interested and more released to have an honest relationship and respond as best we can with whatever's going on in our lives is we know it won't always be this way. And even in the bigger picture, you know, not to, it isn't helpful to believe in things actually like rebirth, but we know that this life ends and what we really know with certainty, we don't know what happens after that. 
you know, is there another life or is that just it? Or even, like, even with that idea that that's just it, it presumes we know what this is so that that, with that view that, well, that's it when you die, that's just it. Like, we don't even know what, we have to really know what this is to know what it is for this to cease. Right? It's like, what is this? That's a, that's the basic Buddhist answer, actually, interestingly enough. If someone really wants to know, like, what's the deal with that? You know, when some young one looks up to you as a mentor and says, what's the deal with that? You know, you look wise or wiser than me or you're older at least. <laughs> what do you know? <laughs> you know? Can you help me out here? And, and the traditional Buddhist answer is, you really want to know what happens at that moment of death? Get to know what's happening in this moment. Because there's a cessation, there's an ending in this moment. In order for this next moment to arise, the previous moment definitely ceases. And it's not like back there in the past, we, which we, you know, we think, you know, because we're so seduced by the world that our thoughts seem to create, like the past is back there and the future is out there, but is there actually future out there? There's this, which is quite alive, and that the sort of wild aliveness of the present moment has an ongoingness. So in that sense, there's continuity. But we don't know, it's not, it doesn't exist, the future, nor does the past exist. It's just this wild, churning, swirling, moving of the present. And I say wild in the sense that things are arising and ceasing, but there's not like, you know, the present moment presents itself fully formed and solid that we get to have before it's even fully 100% here. It's already in the dissolution passing away. And you can observe this. This is not, you know, philosophy or metaphysics. Just in observing something simple like the breathing process, one of the great discoveries, but it doesn't have to be the breath. It could be any ordinary present moment phenomena. You just have to bring enough interest to it. And what is truly shocking and life-changing isn't what you find. Oh, this is the breath. I got it. It's what you don't find. You don't find the breath. You can't find the breath. Even as you get the attention, the stability of present moment awareness gets really developed, really settled and stable and continuous. What you're seeing, what wisdom sees more and more is that there's nothing there in the breathing process to be able to grasp. Oh, this is the breath. It's sort of like uh, in math and other sciences, they have to see, you know, the more you divide, okay, and, you know, we have this in physics, if you know, if I don't know much about physics, but, you know, it's like there were cells, and then they realized the cells were made up of components, and then those components were made up Eventually, they got down to molecules, right? And then they realized, well, molecules are just made up of atoms. And then they, well, atoms are made up of, and then their quarks eventually came, to, you know, and then there was something subquarks or whatever is underneath that. But what we always find 
you know, is emptiness or space. And this is, uh, again, not meant to be theoretical. This is what we actually find. Like when you, if your stability of present moment awareness is uh, continuous enough, we can even be aware of thoughts. So we're not thinking the thoughts. The thinking of thoughts is just that, you know, aspect of the mind. That's what the mind does. It thinks. It's like a thought machine, just spewing out thoughts. Sometimes they're wise thoughts. Sometimes they're silly thoughts. Sometimes they're despicable thoughts. Sometimes they're just ordinary thoughts. What's in the cupboard? What am I going to eat for lunch? But when we're when we really have a sense of what awareness is, like that uh, that capacity to be this reflective knowing, then we can just observe thoughts coming and going, coming and going. And w- when we can do that, we see that thoughts aren't much of anything. What is a thought actually? I mean, you can do this in a more contrived way. You can ask the mind to think a particular thought. You know, there are no pink elephants in the room. That's a thought. So we can... You know, we could strategically repeat that thought a couple times in order to observe it. There are no pink elephants in this room right now. There are no pink elephants in this room right now. Or whatever thought. It doesn't matter what the thought is. I really like being here. But the thought itself has very little substance. It's just like a a whisper of energy in the mind. Very ephemeral kind of movement. And sometimes our thoughts strum some kind of emotional chord in the heart. And then we feel that emotional reverberation. That might have a little bit longer resonance than the thought itself. Like the thought that might strum something in your heart. Someday I'm going to die. Okay. So then you might feel some kind of reverberation. But if you just are present with that emotional tone that arose when you had the thought, someday I'm going to die, and everyone I love is going to die too. And we just, we notice two things, that that emotional tone that has gotten stirred up or strung, it's there, but it's moving. It isn't one thing. It's a flow. And that flow has a, a natural arc of, it arises, full expression, then it's in its fade, and then it's no longer detectable. Every emotion we've had, beautiful emotions, happiness, terrible emotions, sadness, feelings of betrayal and humiliation, they all had their birth, their expression. Where are they now? All those bad, difficult moments, all those beautiful moments. Because I can recall some of them, it seems like they're still here, but that's what's arisen now is the memory, not the past, not that emotion, but the capacity to reconstruct something. And you know, they really have found, people who have studied this, that our memories are current constructions. <laughs> Maybe they, there's some relationship to some previous experience, but not necessarily so. You know, they're they're very alive too, aren't they? That's why, you know, two people of the family can gather for Thanksgiving or something, and we're talking about something that happened 20 years ago, and it's like, 
different. I don't know if people know uh, the famous uh, rock star and writer and songwriter and performer, uh, forgive me, for Sam Crosby. David Crosby. I just, uh, when we found out he died, when and I watched an interview uh, of his um, maybe from a few years ago. And, and the interviewer, who was great, I forget who he was, but was saying he had recently interviewed Stills, uh, his kind of, I forget, it's Stills' first name. Mm-hmm. Stephen Stills. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, they had different ideas, like who wrote what songs. <laughs> <laughs> And they were both very sure, like, <laughs> how that happened. And it's like, we, you know, no, no, you're the one who did Broke Mom's Dish, or, no, no. That and the thing is, we can be so certain. Like, uh, this morning, I had this really moment, just was such a moment of laughter when I realized, but anyway, I was putting my socks on to come here, and uh, and I realized, oh, they look the same, but they're different. And then I, then I thought, oh, this must be wind sock on the one foot and my sock. Because sometimes, you know, we buy the same socks, but different sizes. And, um, and, then, and then the thought like, oh, wind must not have been careful doing the laundry, you know. <laughs> Little pet peeve. This whole drama. And here's the kicker, though. The top of the sock was just folded over. And then I, oh no, they're the same sock. And it's, it's like, it's an example how that reality, which just felt like putting on something, that reality that Wynn had made a mistake. You know, it was just like, oh, that's a very comfortable reality. Because I live in that reality. I have a crit- critical mind. I see what's, I'm noticing right now what's off in this room. But I mean, that's just, it's, I don't like that, but that's just the way this mind is conditioned, right? Some people have more oblivious minds where they don't notice things. Some people have that critical mind. Some people have greedy minds. Right? We have these different temperaments. But the interesting thing is, is to observe how our mind makes up reality and then see how that reality isn't, it's just that construction. And then another moment we can have a different reality. And then a different reality. And then a different reality. And hopefully we start to learn to have some humility. Like, you know, a lot of us, I put myself in this camp, you know, saw ourselves, had this identity of being a kind of progressive person, you know, who kind of understood stuff like around racism, around oppression. And then, you know, things happen and we realize how little we know. How like that was just the stance that the mind had to make us feel comfortable. And it's, it's around sexism, it's around any kind of, you know, just ways our mind tries to be comfortable. Even identification around being a victim in one way or another and holding to that. Because what we don't like is uncertainty and ambiguity. And what the ego likes is certainty. But there really isn't certainty. <laughs> it's just fuzzy. And it doesn't mean that there aren't ways to illuminate what we're not seeing and get clear about things, but we have to let go of the idea of perfect clarity or understand that perfect clarity is really integrating the truth of uncertainty and ambiguity 
which has that emotional flavor of humility, like being okay knowing that we don't know. And it's just, it seems to go against this general uh, current, you know, of trying to be really competent. But, you know, I know some people who are really competent in certain parts of life, and it doesn't require arrogance or a fixed mind, a fixed view about things. Someone can be a really talented parent, mom or dad or whatever, or really talented doctor or really talented therapist or carpenter or mechanic or whatever it might be, caretaker. But what might make them really competent is that humility. And it's not like humility doesn't oppose knowing a lot about how things work. But it, the, one of my teachers, Saido Tishaniya, this Burmese monk, he would say this a lot, like he would make this point, the thing I try to get across to my students over and over again is never to think, like when you have a deep insight and there's a deepening of understanding, never to imagine you're done because the mind loses its curiosity. Oh, now I got it. Now I'm confident. It's like some of us may feel that way in our important relationships as a parent, as a partner, or whatever. Like, I'm good enough at being, you know, a spouse of this person, or I'm good enough. But that's kind of the beginning of death. (laughs) You know, the Buddha says that much about mindful awareness. Those who are, you know, who are negligent, who don't respect the need to be open in this humble way, or as if already dead. Like, we're, we're just going through the motions. Oh, I don't really, I don't really need to be real or fresh here hanging out with my friend. I could do this on autopilot. But nobody wants a friend who's on autopilot. Or a partner who's on autopilot, or a doctor who's on autopilot, or whatever it might be. You know, we really want someone who's there in the moment. We even get this with Dharma talk sometimes. Like somebody might be saying something really wise, really well put together, but there's a sense that they're not really there. Or that the teacher might be really there, but those of us who are listening to the talk, you know, we're listening on autopilot. Like, that's what I do. I listen to Dharma talks. But we're not really like letting it in in a living, alive way. We're not interacting, we're not in the dance with, you know, what's going on in the moment. And this is the positive side of impermanence. You know, I mentioned that, you know, we're beginning the series of talks on the three characteristics. And these are perceptions, and they're skillful means. It's not, again, it's not meant to be metaphysics or some philosophy. There is change, there is the unsatisfactoriness, There is the impersonal nature. So those are what we mean by the three characteristics. So from our ordinary, which means ignorant, not awake point of view, things are changing. Things are ephemeral, insubstantial, and that's unsatisfactory for the ego, right? Because the ego wants things that are set, things I can grab. We want a solid refuge. This is who I am. 
this is my ideas that I cling to, you know, this is what I think is right, this is what I think is wrong, this is what I think is good, and this is what I think is bad. And now I feel real because I've sort of solidified myself. But that never works because the world is fluid. So whatever it is we're counting on will be a place of anxiety, not a place of security. So we, we set up our own insecurity by trying to have solid ground. Like being self-righteous about something. Because things are always fuzzier than how we construct meaning. Doesn't mean we're going to give up on constructing meaning. We're just going to hold it a lot more lightly. Oh yeah, that's how I'm seeing things right now, but who knows? Who knows? So it doesn't keep us from having an opinion, but we just express that opinion with some humility. This is how I'm understanding. And it might even lead to some very strong or fierce action. Because I'm seeing things this way, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to say this thing to this person. Because that seems to be the appropriate response. And I know that I don't, nobody has the whole picture. So we don't expect at the end when I, then I'll have that solid ground. I will have really established it. So the unsatisfactoriness is the heart's, the ignorant heart's quest for certainty is always going to lead to dukkha. That's the unsatisfactoriness, the word, that deeper, more omnipresent kind of suffering is that what our heart is seeking leads to anxiety, not to stability. And what actually leads to stability is integrating with the impersonal changing nature, like learning, well, maybe I can align, integrate, open, never forget, never be surprised by change. I mean, just imagine, what would this life, life, this personality, this mind and body, what would that be like if I were never to be surprised by change, by how attachment always hurts, by taking things personally always creates tension? So what would Mark look like doing what Mark needs to do, you know, my duties and responsibilities. What does that look like when there's no clinging, no attachment, no perceiving permanence where things are really fluid, or perceiving things are satisfactory in a lasting way? Like, I might imagine lunch and the pleasure that will come with it, but I won't misunderstand that pleasure as being substantial. I've had a lot of lunches, you know, and some of them were good, but they they haven't really made any significant dent in my unhappiness, right? The same thing with like an interesting TV show to watch. Yeah, I might read that book or watch that thing or when and I have a ritual of watching some of the clips from Saturday Night Live on the internet on Sunday morning when we get up. But, you know, and most of them are pretty bad. But every <laughs> once in a while there's a, a halfway decent one. But, but even when they kind of hit it right, you know, 
what does the heart really get from that 30 minutes of laughter, or 30 seconds of laughter? Right? What does it get? There's something. It's, it's not right to say it's nothing. It is something. I remember distinctly there was a particular scene, it was about 15 seconds, where I really was laughing, you know, this morning. And, uh, and I had, because I was present, I sort of had, oh, I'm really laughing. And I was just sort of like, it's probably good for me to be laughing. It's good to laugh, right? So it's something positive. It's like good medicine for sure. But it's just interesting now, a couple hours later, you know, what is the long-term implication of that? It was definitely good, wholesome. It seemed that way at least. I mean, not whatever, you know, we probably spent 15 minutes going through the clips, um, I'm not sure all of that was healthy. <laughs> and in the balance, I'm not even sure, right? So that's the, the thing. It's like uh, we do a lot of things thinking they're more significant than they are. And then we avoid the one thing that has real healing resonance, which is that integration. And that this is, I'll leave it at this point, for today, which is that the real uh, point of these three, this teaching on the three characteristics, like learning to use this perception of change. So whatever you're doing, whether you're sitting or just living your lives, just learn to observe like we can right now in this moment, just that it is emotion. The talk is emotion, what you're seeing, what you're feeling in your body. It's fluid. It's not a me, I'm at common ground on Sunday morning, like some edifice. No, it's it's a very alive, fluid thing. We're not a thing. We're a changing process. So this other aspect of the three characteristics, the impermanence, uh, the uh, impersonal nature, it's really not saying you're not something. It's just you're a changing, fluid something. There isn't a mark, but see, we misunderstand. We think there's a me in some permanent way. Have you found that guy or thing or one? No. When we look, the more we look, like I was saying earlier, the more we notice what's not there. There isn't anything fixed or permanent there. And whenever we imagine, then there's that third characteristic of dukkha when we pretend, because of our habits, that there is permanence, that there is something personal, then the dukkha, the anxiety, the underlying uneasiness is just trying to protect something that never was there. A lot of times when people hear the Buddhist teachings on not-self, there's this kind of spiritual grief. Okay, there's me, and now I've got to let go of it, because to be a good Buddhist, you can't be a self. I probably should have some memorial service for myself. Like, I gotta let it go. But we're not letting go of self. There never was a self, that permanent fixed me, that has to be let go of. There's always, always been just this, which is quite fluid and unfixed and ambiguous and uncertain. And so it's more about alignment with the way it's always been than a somebody having to get rid of a something because it's wrong. Which is how we always want to interpret it. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm bad again. I'm clinging to self, 
but I got to stop that, you know, stop clinging to self, stop taking things personally, but I want to take things personally. And the practice was really seeing all that self-centered stuff as a river, right? So we don't have to change. We can continue being a neurotic person if you want, (laughs) but to see you being, you know, wanting to possess things and wanting to cling to your opinions about stuff, just observe that as a river, a fluid, ephemeral, changing, evolving, unfolding. And it's a real gift we give to each other too. Like when I impose on my friends that they're a thing, they don't get to be this living, moving, evolving, unfolding thing. Where we imprison ourselves, we imprison each other. I mean, imagine, bring to mind some politician, whoever. And I mean that, right? And imagine that they just sort of blow our mind. Like, so it's somebody you like or it's somebody you don't like, but they do something completely out of your box. You know, it's like interesting how we try to shove them back in that box. Oh, yeah, but, but, but to allow, like, well, no, there's all kinds of things moving in people. And we keep wanting them to fit our idea. I see Shannon here who's got two sort of uh, elementary school age children and you know, just like that I'm sure you get blown away when you realize I was like, who is that <laughs> that person? <laughs> but but other times it's sort of like we're projecting, like, oh yeah, I, I know this pattern, you know, and it's like we've done this dance together. <laughs> Anyway, we should leave it here. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.